Hi, this is Alan Burrow for Faith Working. The sermon you are about to hear is one I preached at the King's Congregation in Meridian, Idaho. For more sermon podcasts or for the Faith Working radio show podcasts, go to faithworking.com. To subscribe to all our Faith Working podcasts, go to the iTunes store and search for Faith Working under podcasts. For information about the King's Congregation, go to the church website at thekingscongregation.com. Well, we are in the midst of Matthew chapter 18, which is Jesus' fourth major discourse uh, in the book of Matthew. And this one has to do with the faith community that Jesus is forming up. Like Elijah and Elisha in the Old Testament, Jesus is creating within Israel a new faithful Israel, a new faith community. And we saw that this discourse is touched off by a question from Simon Peter, which is this, who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And last week we saw that Jesus answers by taking a little child and holding him up and says uh, to the disciples that whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And then today we are picking up with the next verse, verse 5, and we will be going through verse 20. This is the word of God. Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and if he were drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of offenses, for offenses must come, but woe to that man by whom the offense comes. If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life lame or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life with one eye, rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire. Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine and go to the mountains to seek the one that is straying? And if he should find it, assuredly I say to you, he rejoices more over that sheep than over the ninety-nine that did not go astray. Even so, it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of uh, two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector." Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two or three, uh, two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. God and Father, we pray that in Jesus' name, 
you would send your spirit to be amongst us, to open up the word to us, to bring it to us with power and conviction, that we would be both convicted and also encouraged and built up and strengthened, that we might fulfill the world, the word of Jesus, that we might be the faith community he envisioned and be your faithful people. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, like we said, Jesus is creating this new faithful Israel within Israel, and that is the focus of this section of Matthew, running from uh, chapter 16 all the way through 18, and it's closing now with this major discourse. Now, this new faithful community, what's ironic about it, and as Jesus makes clear in this discourse, this new faithful community that he uh, envisions will have to live in an environment that is not at all conducive to faithfulness. It will have to live in this fallen world, which is full of stumbling blocks. As Jesus says, the world's full of stumbling blocks. It's inevitable that stumbling blocks will come. Further, it is inevitable that these stumbling blocks will make their way into the church. And they will also arise from within the church. Indeed, they will arise from within individual believers, and they will affect the church. Now, this points out the fact that this new faithful community that Jesus is raising up is comprised of sinners. And these sinners have sin rising up from within them. Sin which can not only stumble them, but also other disciples as well. And among the sins that will naturally arise within the disciples, there will be the impulse to look down on other disciples, to be unforgiving, to wander off from Christ, to, to defy admonition from friends, and to defy authority from the church. This is the setting for this new faith community that Jesus envisions. In spite of all this, Jesus envisions this community as being one where there is such a connection between the people and Christ that it can be truly said that Christ is in the midst of them. And it can be truly said that God is hovering over these people to ensure that when it comes to difficult cases where the church itself must act, God will ensure that whatever the church decides is what he has already decided in heaven. Now, you, you remember that this language, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. We've already seen that language back in chapter 16. Peter, uh, Jesus said that to Peter. And we saw there that the construction of the Greek is literally saying, whatever you bind shall have been bound in heaven. It is not a declaration that God will place his seal on whatever the church decides to do. It is, a, it is a statement that when a church is walking with God the way it should, God will preside over their decisions and ensure that whatever they decide will be whatever, what he has already decided in heaven. So that's what Jesus is saying here, and that is what Jesus envisions for this new faith community in spite of the very difficult circumstances that it will face. Now, the main threat to the new faith community 
that Jesus addresses in this passage is stumbling blocks, which is translated offenses in the New King James, which is what I just read from. It's translated offensive, but the Greek word means something that is placed in one's path, which one can easily trip over and fall off the path. That's what it means. It means a stumbling block. And the way Jesus is using the term in this passage, it means more than just causing somebody to sin. It means causing somebody to trip up and to fall off the path of the one true faith or to have their trust in Jesus seriously wounded. What he's talking about here by stumbling blocks is something that causes a sheep to go astray, as he describes it in verse 12, or a sheep to be in danger of perishing, as he says in verse 14. And we see from this passage that Jesus takes stumbling blocks very seriously. He says in verse 6, that whoever causes one of these little ones to sin, that is to stumble, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. And then Jesus pronounces a woe to the world because of offenses, because of stumbling blocks. For stumbling blocks must come, but woe to that man by whom the stumbling block comes. So while Jesus does not specify what the punishment is, if drowning with a millstone around your neck is preferable, it must be horrible indeed. Now, Jesus' concern here is for little ones, what he calls little ones. And, of course, he's still holding this little child. So there's a great visual there. This little child is who the, the apostles are seeing. And his concern is for little ones. And we can see that Jesus here begins to refer to more than just little children within the church. He begins to refer to all the disciples as little ones. Now, of course, he is, in fact, referring to the little ones who believe in him. But Jesus is using them as an example and as a visual to describe all disciples within the church. He has already held them up as an example in the sense of little ones do not have any status. And so we're not supposed to be those who are seeking status for ourselves. We're supposed to entrust ourselves uh, to God in that regard. We are to be humble ourselves uh, as they are in that regard. Now he is using them, I think, to focus on the fact that little ones, their faith is like a, a new plant that is just shot up through the ground. The life is as genuine as it can get, and the faith of a little one is as genuine as you can get. But it's very, very tender. It's very, very, it's just a tender little shoot. It is easily stumbled. Little ones are easily stumbled, and I think Jesus is using that as a picture to point out the fact that as a whole, disciples are characterized by the fact that we are easily stumbled. We're easily tripped up, knocked off the path, it's easy for us to have our trust in Jesus shaken. Now, that's true in varying degrees, of course, but for disciples as a whole, that's true. And that's why he begins to refer to all disciples here as little ones. <clears throat> now, the picture Jesus is painting then is one of a world full of stumbling blocks, disciples who were very susceptible to stumbling blocks, so that great care must be taken to avoid stumbling blocks 
within the faith community. So the question then arises, how is to that to be done? And that's what Jesus is speaking to in this passage. And the general theme of, of all of Matthew 18 and of our text today in particular is an old theme. And that theme is love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus is talking about here what that looks like. What does that look like within the faith community? So we've already seen from last week, number one, there has to be an entrustment of self by each individual disciple to God so that we do not have pride, we do not have status-seeking, we do not have, therefore, rivalry and envy. If we, if we don't have this attitude of humbling ourselves and entrusting ourselves to God to start with, then we're off on the wrong foot immediately. And as James tells us, self-seeking leads to rivalry and envy. And he says, where you have rivalry and envy, you have confusion and every evil thing. Okay, and that's what Jesus wants to avoid. Secondly, there must be great regard for other disciples within the church and great appreciation for how our sin can affect others. You see in verse 5, he says that we are to receive little ones. We're to receive other disciples, even weak disciples, in Jesus' name. Receiving them is seen as being the opposite of despising them, which we see in verse 10. He says, take heed that you do not despise any of these little ones, any of these disciples, even the weakest. The word despise in the Greek means to think little of. You just think it's not worth much. And so you think little of it. You take no thought for it. We're not to have that attitude toward other disciples within the church. Rather, instead, there must be this great care to remove stumbling blocks from our own lives, lest in stumbling ourselves, we cause others to stumble. Most times in the church, when you have a stumbling block that is causing other people to stumble, it is because there's been a stumbling block inside uh, one disciple which has caused them to stumble. And it may have arisen up within them. It may not be caused by any other person. But a stumbling block has arisen up within an individual disciple. And of course, that's not self-contained. It not only stumbles them, but their stumbling then begins to affect others and to stumble others. And you see, that's what Jesus is concerned with here um, in verses 8 and 9. There must be an attitude of forgiveness toward other disciples. That's something that Jesus is going to address in the last part of Matthew 18, which we will get to next week. The good of other disciples must be pursued. The good of other disciples must be pursued, and fellowship with them must be pursued. There must be an atmosphere of peace. The reconciliation which we have with God through Christ must be maintained. We must have an act of peace between the individual disciples and God. That means there has to be a genuine relationship of fellowship there. And that peace and reconciliation must also be seen in all the disciples of the church. Now, pursuing fellowship and peace and reconciliation 
throughout the church, this often means that other disciples themselves must be pursued. Perhaps they are straying. Perhaps they have sinned against you. Or perhaps you think they have sinned against you. Perhaps you have sinned against them, and that's why they have sinned against you. In all of these situations, fellowship must be pursued. Peace must be pursued, and as well as the good of all concerned. And that's what Jesus is getting out in verses 12 and 13 when he gives the parable of the lost sheep. And it's also what he's talking about in verses 15 through 17 when uh, he talks about approaching a brother who has sinned. And in all of this, he is telling us that we are to imitate him, verse 11, we're to imitate the Son of Man who came to save that which is lost. And we're also to imitate the Father, verse 14. It is not the will of the Father that any of these little ones should perish. We're to have the same mentality as disciples. Now, in developing this theme of love your neighbor as yourself, Jesus is drawing on and evoking several passages from Scripture. First of all, I hope you recognize that he is evoking his own words earlier in Matthew from the Sermon on the Mount, from uh, Matthew chapter 5, when he says in verses 8 and 9, If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. That's very similar to what Jesus already said in the Sermon on the Mount. There he was speaking in terms of lust, of men uh, lusting, desiring, coveting a woman that God had not given to them, a woman who is not their wife. And in that context, Jesus says, hey, if your eye causes you to sin, then pluck it out. Now, some of this is Jesus uh, using this kind of shocking language to cut through the kind of excuses that we often make. You know, men can think, well, this causes me to sin. I couldn't help it. It says, oh, Jesus says, okay, really? That causes you to sin? Then pluck it out. Is your eyes? Your eyes cause you to sin? Okay, pluck them out. Well, then all of a sudden, well, I guess it's not really my eyes causing me to sin. I guess it's my heart causing me to sin. But if there is something in your environment, whatever it is, reading material, other stuff, stuff on the computer, some place you've been hanging out that's causing you to sin, get rid of it. There's a drastic attitude that Jesus has. Now, he brings the same attitude here when it comes to stumbling blocks. He says, if there are things that's causing you to stumble and that's causing other people to stumble, you get rid of it. And it may be things that are fine for others. It may just be a personal problem, a, a way that our personal sin manifests itself. It, it may be something that's perfectly lawful. It's fine for other Christians. But it may be that in our personal sinful makeup, we can't handle that particular thing. Which means that we have to understand in our life, that thing's got to go. But it doesn't mean that it needs to go from everybody else. And so this is the call to discipleship. So he's evoking his own words from the Sermon on the Mount. Other words he's evoking are from Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15, when he says, By the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every matter be established. That's quoting Deuteronomy chapter 19. 
But behind all of these other passages, the one I think that is seminal, the one that is foundational and lies behind all of them is Leviticus chapter 19, verses 14 through 18. And that is the passage where God says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, which Jesus will tell us later in the Gospel of Matthew, sums up our entire duty to man. So let's look for a moment then at Leviticus chapter 19, because this provides the backdrop to what Jesus is telling us here. And I think when we understand Matthew 18 in the light of Leviticus 19, it makes a lot of things fall into place. Where well, I've reprinted there on the outline for you, Leviticus 19, 14 through 18. Now you can look just right off the bat that in verse 14, Leviticus 19, God starts off talking about stumbling blocks. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind. You shall fear the Lord your God, I am the Lord. And then near the very end, down in verse 17, he's talking about rebuking your neighbor. Well, these are the same things Jesus is talking about in our text from Matthew 18. He's talking about stumbling blocks, and he's talking about rebuking your neighbor. So all of this is part of loving your neighbor as yourself. That's the last part of verse 18. So now that we see, when we walk around this passage, we see a lot of common themes. Let's slow down a minute and, and look for the commonalities here. Starts off talking about stumbling blocks. And here, instead of using a little one, like Jesus is using as an example to show susceptibility to stumbling, here God uses the deaf and the blind. Now, obviously, he is referring to those who are literally deaf, are literally blind, but what's the common factor there? They are people who are particularly susceptible to being tripped up and stumbled, okay? And that's the same thing that Jesus is using little ones to show in Matthew chapter 18. So God says you take those, even those who are particularly susceptible to stumble, he says you make sure that you don't place a stumbling block before them. Now, going on to verse 15, it says, You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor honor the person of the mighty. Now, we're very used to the idea of not showing preference to those who are rich or powerful. But notice that the verse completes that. It also says, You shall not be partial to the poor. In other words, in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. Well, here in verse 10 of Matthew 18, Jesus says, don't despise little ones. Don't think little of them. Okay? This is the same concept here. In righteousness, you shall judge your neighbor. You don't give regard to somebody who's rich or poor or those kind of things. You judge according to righteousness. Verse 16, you shall not go about as a talebearer among your people, nor shall you take a stand against the life of your neighbor. Tail-bearing, gossip, slander, and so forth is a form of standing against the life of your neighbor. Now, notice in verse 15, when Jesus says, when there's an issue between you and a, and a brother or a sister, or maybe you're just aware of a brother or sister sinning, he says, you shall go to them and deal with it just between the two of you. It's the same concept. Then in verse 17, where Jesus talks about rebuking your neighbor, 
Notice, I mean, when God talks about rebuking your neighbor, notice the context. He says uh, in verse 18, you shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people. So rebuking your neighbor, approaching your neighbor, going to your brother or your sister is set in contrast to taking vengeance on the one hand or bearing a grudge in your heart on the other hand. Taking vengeance or bearing a grudge are forms of hating your brother in your heart. Verse 17. In contrast to that, we're to love our neighbor as ourselves. That's why you approach your brother or your sister. And I think this is what's in the background. And this helps us understand what Jesus is saying in Matthew 18. So with these things in mind, let's consider Jesus' application regarding approaching a brother or a sister regarding sin. Now, remember... Jesus is not giving a manual here. This is not an A to Z, soup to nuts treatment of dealing with sin or approaching brothers or sisters. There's a whole context here which has to do with loving your brother and your sister, seeking your brother and your sister. In context in Matthew 18, going to a brother or sister to approach them about sin is a means of pursuing them, pursuing somebody who's straying. The focus is what's good for them. And it's so easy for us when we forget the context for us to be good little Pharisees and check off the blocks of Matthew 18 and all the while be completely violating what Jesus is talking about because we don't have the spirit, we don't have the heart or the mind, and we don't understand the broader context. So he's not giving an exhaustive treatment of this here. He's highlighting certain principles as a corrective to the way that in first century Israel and still today, these things are often misunderstood. So we want to consider Jesus' words in the light of what else Scripture tells us about these things. Now, first of all, we need to see that uh, when it talks about If your brother has sinned against you, in verse 15, there the words against you. In the Greek, it's unusual and it's hard to know exactly what's being said. So it's not clear from the Greek that Jesus is just talking about if your brother sins against you. He may be talking about if if your brother sins in the context of other people. And I think that's what he's saying. I don't think he's limiting this to just when somebody's sinning against you. And I think what helps us here is, again, Deuteronomy 19.15, which Jesus quotes in verse 16. In Deuteronomy 19.15, it clearly refers to any iniquity or sin. So it's talking about a situation where some, you're aware of somebody else's sin. You may be aware of it because they've sinned against you. But you may be aware of it. They haven't sinned against you. You're just aware of it. So this is not limited to just when somebody has sinned against you. Okay? So looking at this and making practical application, let's first talk about what should be our default setting toward the sins of others within the church. What should be our default setting toward one another regarding sins? That default setting should be let love cover. 
let love cover. In 1 Peter 4, 8, Peter says, Above all things, have a fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Covering sins is what love does. It's what love does. When Peter says love will cover a multitude of sins, he's quoting Proverbs 10, 12. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all sins. So love, the general direction of love is to cover sins. If you don't have love, then you will have a mentality which will stir up strife. The sin is a given. The sin is there because we're sinners. What we want is an environment of peace and health spiritually so that God can deal with our sins. We don't want to stir up strife and pride and so forth. So when it comes to the sins of others, overlook what you can when you can. Overlook what you can when you can. And realize that in doing so, we are imitating God. We're imitating God. We sin continually. Everything we do falls short of the glory of God. Even our best day, our best act, falls short of the glory of God. But God receives us. He accepts us. When we offer something to God, when we offer our best to God, it's like a three-year-old coloring a picture for mommy or daddy. Okay? It looks very little like what it really should look like. It falls short in every way, but it still goes up on the refrigerator. Okay? That's the way God receives us. He receives us. He overlooks the vast majority of our sin. He doesn't come to us about all of our sin. He doesn't convict us about all of our sin. We couldn't take it. He'd destroy us. We, we couldn't make it. We couldn't handle knowing about all of our sin. God deals with us in love. He deals with us progressively. He brings one thing to us or a couple of things to us because he wants to help us with that right now. And that's what he focuses on. And he helps us mature. And then he gives us victory and he, and he gives us joy. And then he brings something else and points that out to us. And so we want to be like God. God overlooks the vast majority of our sin. And that's what we want to do toward one another. Okay. Obviously, though, some sins should not be overlooked because Jesus here talks about approaching a brother or sister about sin. Okay. So how do we know when a sin is too serious to overlook? or the, 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 the nature of a sin, whether it's toward you or whether it's not toward you and you're just aware of it, it should not be overlooked, but you ought to go and approach a person. I'm going to give you five factors to consider. And these here, I am drawing heavily on the work of Ken Sandy and the Peacemakers uh, Ministry in Montana. So these uh, are largely their insights from Scripture with a few of my own sprinkled in here and there. But I want to give you five factors to consider in determining whether a sin should be overlooked or whether you need to approach a brother or sister. Number one, is it doing serious damage to God's reputation? Notice I didn't just say, is it dishonoring God? All sin dishonors God. It's the very definition of sin. Okay? The question is, is it doing serious damage to God's reputation? 
which tends to me is it's a sin that others are going to see. Is it making others think less of God? Is it making others think less of God's Word? Is it making others think less of the church? Most of us, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, most of us have been through at least one bad church experience. One, at least one ugly church experience. Okay? And it's easy for people to come away from those and just think, you know, I'm kind of done with the church. I'm not done with Jesus, but I'm done with the church. You know, very tempting because church is full, is full of this tangled mass of sinners. That's who we are. We can't give up on the church because Jesus will not give up on the church. It is his way. It is his own way. It is what he has declared will prevail against the gates of hell. It is the community that he has promised to be with until the end of the age. Can we do any less? So these are questions you ask. Is it doing serious damage to God's reputation, making others think less of God, of the Bible, or of the church? And it's often good when you ask yourself those questions, if you're answering yes to these questions, it's good to add another question and say, how? That helps you bring some concreteness to the question. All right, second question. Is the sin doing lasting damage to your relationship with the person? Okay, that would be some kind of a sin that's toward you or it's affecting you. Is it doing lasting damage to your relationship with the person? Notice I say lasting damage. When we have relationships with people, we're going to sin, they're going to sin, some of our sin, some of their sin, it's going to damage the relationship. Somebody's having a bad day, they pop off, they're impatient. That does damage to the relationship. The question is, is it doing lasting damage to the relationship? Okay? And then you might ask yourself the follow-up question, how? Number three, is the sin doing serious damage to other people? Is it doing serious damage to other people? To a wife, to a husband, to children, to friends, to other members in the church, and so forth. Fourth, is the sin doing serious damage to the person, to the person who is sinning? Is it doing serious damage to them? Obviously, no sin is helpful to anybody. But you're talking about sin doing serious damage. And, five, and finally, five... Is the sin doing serious damage to the person's usefulness to God? Is it doing serious damage to their usefulness to God? Now, if you answer yes to one or more of these questions, that is a strong indication that the sin should not be overlooked, but you should approach your brother or sister about the sin. So the next question becomes, how do you prepare to approach someone? And notice I don't use the word confront. Confront is typically the word that's used, confront your brother. I, I don't like to use that word because confront is related to confrontational. And we know what confrontational means. It's like you're in somebody's face. It kind of means you're kind of offensive, kind of harsh, kind of whatever. And, and I don't want to conjure up any ideas of that. And that's why I talk about approaching somebody. So in preparing to approach somebody, 
There are some rules of thumb to follow, and I want to give you three. The first is pray. Pray. We need Christ in the midst. That's what Jesus has promised here on condition of not perfect faithfulness, but still substantial faithfulness on our part to doing what he's saying. What we want is God hovering over us and presiding over things. It's only Christ and God who can work. We can't make any of this work. We can be instruments, but we can't actually do the work. So we need to pray for God to work, for Christ to be in the midst, for him to superintend. Number two, examine your own heart. Examine your own heart. Examine your heart regarding your motives, regarding your perceptions, and your possible contributions to the problem. Especially need to examine your own heart if it's a sin against you. They've sinned against you. Check your motives, check your perceptions, check the possibility that you've contributed to the situation. Now, it doesn't mean that this should just make you go away. It doesn't necessarily mean that. It means you want to be an instrument, even if you've been part of the problem, even if your perceptions may not be perfect, even if you may not have all the facts, even if your motives may not be perfect, you still want to be God's instrument, so you want to uh, turn in a godly direction. Third, keep the goal in mind. What is the goal? What is it you're trying to do? What, are, what is it you're trying to be an instrument in? Here's a good question to ask. How do I glorify God here? That's all you're trying to do. You're trying to glorify God here. The next question is, how do I do good to this person? Even if they've sinned against you and have hurt you. Jesus gives you the freedom and the power and therefore the duty to ask this question. How do I do good to this person who just sinned against me? And how do I do good to the others connected to the situation? That's what you're trying to do. That's the goal. Okay. Now, when it comes to actually approaching the person, again, I want to give you some rules of thumb. I'm going to give you six. I'm sure there's more. You may think of some others, but I can, I can think of th six, again, with the help of Ken Sandy and the Peacemakers uh, material. Number one, in approaching the brother or sister, be kind and thoughtful. Be kind and thoughtful. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus analogized approaching somebody about their sin to probing their eye. Getting a speck out of somebody else's eye. Remember that one? So, as people, as fallen sinners, we're defensive at the best of times. That's the way we are. We're defensive. We're very sensitive. That's at the best of times. Try to touch an eye. You know, it's very sensitive, okay? Very sensitive, and that's the way we are at the best of times. If somebody is sinning, it's not the best of times. 
Their eye is sensitive to start with. You put a speck in it. That speck has been there for some time. It doesn't belong there. It's causing problems in the eye. The eye now is irritated. It's red and whatever. They're, they're trying to ignore it. Now the eye is going to be extra sensitive. You're probing somebody's eye. Remember that. So be kind and thoughtful. Proverbs 12, 18, it says reckless words. Notice it doesn't mean intentionally mean words. Reckless, reckless words. Words that are not careful. Pierce like a sword. But the tongue of the wise brings healing. That's what you're trying to do. So you need the tongue of the wise. Proverbs 25, 15. A gentle tongue breaks a bone. A lot of times when you're dealing with a sin issue, somebody uh, has had damage to themselves done, spiritually speaking, and, and you've got bones joined together in a way that they don't go. And the whole process of approaching somebody, of somebody repenting and, and really walking with God the way they should, the whole process means breaking a bone to reset it. Again, this is, a, this is a tough and painful process. What kind of tongue breaks a bone? It's not a harsh tone, a tongue. It's not a, a, a reckless tongue. It's not that. It's a gentle tongue that breaks a bone. Ephesians 4.29, Paul says that the kind of talk that should come from us should be gauged by this maxim. Talk that is helpful for building others up according to their needs. So all of that should guide our demeanor, our attitude, and our words. Be kind and thoughtful. Number two, praise where you can. Praise where you can. This is something we see the Apostle Paul doing in his epistles. Consider his letter to the Colossian church. Now, this is a letter that... Uh, it seems I have competition over here. I don't think I can compete with that. Um, this is uh, a letter that Paul is writing to a church that's got some difficulties. The whole church, uh, or a significant group within them, is wandering off. There, some false doctrine is coming in, a false conception. They're wandering off into these views of higher spirituality and asceticism as means of achieving higher spirituality, visions of angels, and all of this kind of stuff is going on. So Paul is not just writing them a friendly letter. He's writing them a letter where he's got to approach them and make some corrections about what they're believing, about what they're teaching, and about what they're doing. But the way he starts off is this. We give thanks to God, the, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints. Now, Paul isn't making this up. He's not just making up stuff. This is true. There is something about the Colossians that Paul can be thankful for, and so he makes sure that he does. He leads out with this. He praises them. He gives God thanks for them, for things that are genuine. And usually when we're approaching somebody, there's something. There's something they have done to bless others. Maybe something they have done to bless you. And so it's good for you to praise where you can. Number three, 
Be quick to listen. Be quick to listen. James says in James 1, Let everyone be quick to hear and slow to speak. Now you're coming to them because you have some things to say, in which you need to say, in which they need to hear you say. But you need to be quick to hear. Being attentive is one of the most powerful ways to affirm a person's worth. Okay? Jesus says, don't despise them. Don't think little of them. One of the best ways you can show them that is by being willing to listen, listening to what they say. In addition to that, you may not have all the facts. There's a lot of situations where we have to approach somebody and we don't have all the facts. And there's a lot of situations that there's some detail you don't know. And once that detail comes into the picture, it changes everything. It may change your assessment of the whole thing, or it may just, it may not change your assessment that, that they're straying off into sin and they need help, but it may help explain why it, and give you some insight in how to help them. Even if you do have all the facts, what you want to do in this conversation is not just tell them things, you want to draw them out. You want to get them talking. You want to draw them out. You want to bring down their defenses. You want to bring down the barriers. And often the most convicting and persuasive words one can ever hear are words that come out of their own mouth. Nathan got David talking when he went to speak to David and approach him about his sin. He got David talking. He talked about another situation and what another man had done. David said, let that this man needs to be put to death. The most convicting words could ever be spoken are the words that came out of David's own mouth. Okay? And sometimes just by a person ramping the situation down, drawing them out, um, showing that you care about them, a lot of times as they hear themselves talk about the situation, they know, they know. They're stuffing the truth down, but they know. And it comes out. They hear their own words. Number four. If the sin has been against you, be open to the possibility that you have contributed to the situation and possibly sinned against the other person. It's, sometimes you do have a situation where one person is 100% at fault and the other person is not at fault at all. Those do exist. They're very rare. They're very rare. Okay? And so maybe you haven't sinned against them, but there just may be something you've, you've contributed to the situation. A very good way to start, if the person has sinned against you, even if you can't think of something you've done against them, a very good way to start a conversation is by asking them if you have offended them. Not, let me tell you how you have offended me. Let me tell you how you've sinned against me. But asking if you have offended them in some way. 
Number one, you start out, you put the spotlight on yourself first. Right? The other thing is it tends to have a disarming effect. You're not sticking your fingers in their eye to start off with. And when you ask this question, listen, listen. A lot of times in these circumstances, it's difficult. This isn't fun. And so your heart can be pounding. You're not comfortable. You're nervous. Um, You're trying to think of what you should say next or what you can say next. And it can be very, very hard to listen. But just push all those things aside and really listen to them. You know, if it turns out that you have sinned, Confess, agree. Agree whenever possible, and that's what confession means. It means to agree with. We confess our sins, we're agreeing with God. So if they say something that's true, if it's partially true, agree with the part that's partially true. Because this is what you're trying to get them to do, is to have a spirit of honesty and humility and of confession. And so show them the way. Fifth, use wise words when addressing the sin. Use wise words when addressing the sin. Okay? You don't want to be standing, uh, as it were, straight across from them, confrontationally. If possible, you want to slip around to the side of them, figuratively speaking, standing to their side, kind of coming up, putting your arm around them, so to speak. So speak in terms of your concern for them. Speak in terms of your concern for their relationship with God. Your concern for others that they are affecting. Your concern for their testimony or for their usefulness to God. You want them to come to see that their sin is hurting everyone themselves included. And sin, as James tells us, always involves self-deception. It always involves self-deception. And so here, by definition, you're probably talking about a situation where somebody has, something has built up over time. Even if it's one act, let's say they've done something that's really wrong, uh, but it's a single act as far as you know. Really wrong, single acts don't just happen. Somebody's having an affair, it doesn't just happen on the way to Walmart. It's not the way it happens. There's a whole build-up. There's all kinds of compromises and stuff that have been going on and a long build-up to the final uh, act that happens. And so there's a lot of self-deception that's going on here with this person. They're stuffing the truth down. They know the truth, but they're pushing it down. They're pushing it down. And so you want to help them um, get out of that, sidestep that self-deception. So speak them in terms of your concerns for them, their relationship with God, others they're affecting, their testimony, their usefulness to God. And finally, number six, if need be, get help. If need be, get help. And that's part of what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about their uh, particular example he gives is a more formal setting. 
of, of uh, witnesses. But that, he's not limiting it to that. So what does help look like? Help may mean a witness to the sin. It may mean the person is just completely denying. Nope, wasn't there, wasn't there. Didn't do it, wasn't there. You're wrong, you're mistaken. No matter how nice and everything you're trying to be around it. Well, you may be aware that there's another friend and they saw it too. And so it's not like you're trying to get one-upsmanship here. You're, you're trying again to help the person come around. So you and the other friend, now both of you go and you say, Dude, we both saw you. We were both there. Okay? So help may mean a witness to the sin. But help may mean a wise, godly Christian whose involvement will increase the likelihood of the person coming around. It may be somebody who's not a witness. It's just a wise, godly Christian whose involvement will increase the likelihood of the person coming around. Ideally, this will be somebody that the, the other person respects. It does not have to be an elder. I mean, elders, this is, this is part of what we're here for. But it doesn't have to be an elder. But it does need to be, if they're not a witness to the situation, if they're not part of the situation, and you think that bringing them in to something that they don't know about is going to help, they need to be wise and they need to be godly. Or they're not going to help. No matter how much they want, may want to help, they need to be wise and godly. That's the requirement. And part, part of the wisdom and godliness means it needs to be somebody who's not going to start talking about it. It needs to be somebody who can handle this kind of situation and is not going to change their opinion. They're not going to stumble over this or start to spread it and so forth and cause others to stumble. It needs to be somebody who's got that kind of wisdom and that kind of godliness. But there are those kind of Christians in our midst who are not elders. Okay, so it's not limited to elders. This is not limited to officers, what Jesus is describing here. Now, if you find yourself being recruited as help in this kind of a situation, somebody comes to you and says, have a situation, a thought maybe you could help with this. Okay, if you get asked to help and you feel like you need to consult, you need to think about it or whatever, okay, well, come, come to one of the elders. You know, come talk to us and, and let us help you be help in the situation. Okay? If the sin was against you and the person claims that you sinned against them and the two of you can't make any progress there, you're just kind of going round and around, the situation's not getting better, then help may mean a wise, godly Christian that you both respect who can help the both of you sort it out, okay? And I think that's what Jesus envisions. Again, it doesn't have to be an elder, but it needs to be somebody who's wise and godly who can help you. So these are the practical uh, things that I want to offer to help us do what Jesus says, okay? There's part of what Jesus says here in this passage that we will do very easily. And that is the part where it talks about living in a world full of stumbling blocks. Check. We got it. Okay. 
we also have down the part about stumbling blocks arising in and among us. We got that part down too. Okay? Jesus says it's inevitable. He says there's nothing we can do about that until he returns. What we need then is Jesus in our midst in a powerful way, God hovering over us in a powerful way, causing us, a bunch of sinners, to be the people of God in such a way that it shows forth a life that the world knows nothing about. And that doesn't come from just sweeping everything up under the rug. It does come from a forgiving attitude, overlooking a multitude of sins, but it also calls for loving somebody enough to not sit there and despise them in your heart because you've got a grudge against them, or not seeking vengeance, which is often through gossip. You want to turn other people's opinions against the other person. You know, all of those are forms of hating your neighbor. Jesus says it's by our love that the world will know we're his disciples. If we're going to be the community of faith and love, then we have to take these practical steps that Scripture gives to us. And so I commend all of these things to you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.